There are people in this world willing to put their life on the line to share stories the world needs to see. I've covered, you know, pretty intense situations. I've, you know, I've been in shootouts. I've been in meth labs. I've been in torture chambers. Um, you know, safe houses with people who are getting hunted by ISIS. You know, a lot of places that you don't necessarily want to find yourself. Today, I'll be introducing you to a former roommate of mine, and now an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker. His name is Matt Heineman. We lived in a shoddy apartment in Midtown Manhattan. The place was a mess. I had met Matt at HBO, where he was working at the documentary department while also working on his own documentary. I had just returned home from Japan for my ESPN movie, and HBO was airing my first movie in a nursing home. We were probably in our, I don't know, early 20s, and Matt was more than anything just kind, and he worked hard. Anyway, he asked if I needed an apartment, a room to stay in. I said, absolutely. And so about 10 years ago, we both would be in our apartment editing away our separate projects. I've stayed in touch with Matt through the years. He's helped a lot with my high school film festival. And since our time in Midtown, he's gone on to direct some of the best, at least I think, some of the best documentaries of our time. Cartel Land is about the Mexican drug war. He chronicles El Doctor, who is a man that becomes fed up with the local cartel, the Knights Templar cartel, and he leads an uprising. The movie's incredible, was nominated for an Academy Award, won an Emmy. I think it's on Netflix. In 2017, Matt came out with City of Ghosts, which is a movie that will never leave you. It's a documentary about the Syrian media activist group Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. And the film really focuses on what's going on in Aleppo, Syria. I think more than anything, Matt is a storyteller. Something uh, that film, storytelling, podcasts, whatever form of, of storytelling we're talking about, has the ability to bring people together, has the ability to create dialogue, has the ability to um, foster discussion and make people stop and think and care, at least for a little bit. His latest film, The Private War, I think was the best of the year. It's about Marie Colvin. It's his first fictional film, although it's obviously based on a true story. Marie Colvin was the American journalist who was killed in Homs, Syria, after she got caught up in a massive coup and there was explosions and she unfortunately died from one of the blasts. That movie is out now. And here is my interview with Matt Heineman. As someone who wouldn't know, what is it like to go from documentary to to narrative? I mean, for me, with the type of docs that I make, so much of that process is about trust. It's about trust with your subjects. It's about developing that rapport so that they can be themselves, so you can you know follow action as it unfolds before you, so you can be in those places when you're not supposed to be in those places, so you can capture those moments that you're not supposed to capture. And I found that skill to be quite transferable to working with actors. Hmm. You know, I think a, a big part of working with actors is, is that trust, where, where you can both challenge each other and push each other and make mistakes and experiment and improvise and... Um, so that was fun. Um, but obviously, you know, walking out onto a film set for the first time, which is my first day of shooting, uh, and seeing, you know, hundreds of people was quite a, a different experience. So a quick jump in here. You'll hear Matt talk about not using just actors. He actually uses 
quote unquote real people, people who've gone through trauma in war uh, in different scenes of the movie, uh, taking advantage of his documentary past. You know, I'm used to being out in the middle of nowhere by myself, shooting, taking sound, downloading footage, and to have departments for all of those things. Um, yeah, it was, was, was different. But, you know, I tried as much as possible to bring that documentary ethos into the process of a narrative film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I spent about a year doing research uh, into both Marie Colvin, uh, the journalist that the film is about, um, as well as the different, you know, war zones that she visited uh, in an attempt to at least make, you know, as authentic a portrayal of her and that experience of being a war correspondent um, as possible. And there's, you know, there's countless examples of that, um, whether it's, you know, casting all, you know, non, non-actors, uh, refugees living in Jordan where we shot, um, to be you know, the background cast so that when she walks into, you know, a room full of, you know, women and children who are being sheltered, you know, the women that she speaks to are real women really from homes in Syria telling their own real stories, oh, wow. shedding real tears. Um, and, you know, there's, yeah, there's examples throughout the film like that. Did you feel like you had to prove yourself because you are first, you're, you're doing your first scripted film and you're dealing with, you're working with really experienced actors. Cause obviously if you're in Mexico or Aleppo, you've you've done it, and you can you can be like, guys, I've done this. You know, trust me, I've done this. What do you do when you're talking with actors, or, or did they not question that? No, you know, when you're packaging a movie together, it, and, and this is a film with a very strong female lead, casting Marie uh, was the mo- you know the first step in, in making the film a reality, and it was really really important to me to find somebody that would treat me as an equal that would. Um, you know, get their hands dirty. And when I met Rosamund Pike, uh, she came to a screening of my documentary, City of Ghosts. We got along quite well. We had, we had breakfast the next day, and just the sort of like passion and rigor and intelligence with which she approached me and this wanting this part so bad. Hmm. Um, I felt like I was almost watching Marie Colvin go after an article. I mean, and and she wrote me this essay, this like three page essay of who is Marie Colvin after that breakfast that we had and was so smart and spot on and and just her intuition was incredible. And so I could just tell that this is someone that was going to get in the trenches with me and that was the best decision I made. You know, she was incredible to work with and, you know, we were really partners in this for, for in the development of it and the research of it and and obviously in, in the making of it. But then, to be honest, you know, there's a ton of sexism in Hollywood, and you know, a lot of male leads wouldn't, even, you know, their agents or their reps wouldn't even return phone calls to play, you know, supporting uh, role to a woman. Hmm. And so, you know, huge amount of respect. Not that I even should be having to get respect, but to you know, Tom Holland or Stanley Tucci and, and Jamie Dornan, who, yeah. who played alongside her. Something that you taught me, you dropped a, a quote that I use a lot that I think you might have gotten, I think you said you got it from Maisel's, was, and I use it all the time, and I usually preface with, it sounds a little cheesy, but it's true. And it's that in a documentary, if your story 
at the end is the same as it was in the beginning, it means you weren't listening in between. It's a hell of a line. People fucking love it. Um, I say it slightly differently. Yeah. How do you say it? Because I do. I switch it up sometimes. I'm like, if if what's what you see on the big screen is or no. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're the guy who said it to me. So have I been fucking it up since? No, it's the same. 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 same, uh, Yeah. If you end up with the story you started with, then you weren't listening along the way. And I always say that's good advice for life. Yeah. And it's good advice for filmmaking. So then, if we really nerd out here, the there's the Hitchcock line of. It's telling you the effect of in in scripted films, the director is God. In documentary films, God is the director. Does did you have to in this movie? In this movie, you have a script, you have a vision, you have an idea of how you how you need the story to end. Opposed to like Cartel Land, I remember we were in Chelsea having a beer, you know, how many ever years ago, and you were he would just read this article about vigilantes and, and wherever, and that was going to be the movie. And then a couple of years later or whatever, you come back and it's something entirely different. Right. Yeah. So how does that, how does that work? Are you still open to the story changing in a narrative film or, or you have to kind of avoid that in a way? No, I mean, that, that's, I, I talk about that a lot. I mean, that's, I tried as much as possible to bring that into this process. Mm-hmm. Part of that was obviously, you know, working with a lot of non-actors, a lot of refugees who who on set created an atmosphere of authentic, real trauma. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're re- reliving things that were so painful and so real. And, you know, at, at one point, uh, there's a scene in which a, a father <clears throat> brings in his young boy into a clinic in homes in Syria um, who ends up dying on the on yeah. the table and he was really from homes oh wow he you know his two-year-old nephew was on his shoulders at a protest and shot by a sniper and bled out in front of him and so just the insane amount of trauma and grief that he brought into that room was almost unbearable bearable for everybody and and you know when he's saying why god why yeah, right you know, that's him speaking, obviously, in the film, but to all of us, really. Mm. And so, you know, it was really difficult for Rosamond. Um, and she actually walked off set, and she's like, I don't know if I can handle this. Like, what are we doing? Like, the lines are so blurred here. I don't mm. know. Is this a documentary? I mean, I'm an actress like, from from London. Like, what, what, what are we doing? And I said to her, look, this is something I deal with on a daily basis when making a documentary is your human instinct is to want to give someone a hug, or to give them space, but you know, my job uh, and our job now is to capture those moments. Um, you know, he wouldn't be here if he didn't want his story to be told, right. and that's that's why he's here. But you know, there's a lot of other examples. There's a scene in the when she uncovers a mass grave in this movie. Probably sounds so dark right now, but um, there's a scene in which she uncovers a mass grave. In, in Iraq, she, you know, she had this amazing ability to sort of find scoops that no one else was was getting. Right. Um, and we shot this this day. We shot the scene all in one day. You shot that whole thing in one day. You know, following the sun, we we arrived. I was going to say the sun. I mean, the lighting in this movie is fucking spectacular. It's mostly natural lighting. I um, know. That's how you do things. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't quite know how to use a light. Yeah, you um, don't. And. You know, an amazing cinematographer, Bob Richardson. Um, he shot everything from like 
Platoon to Born on Fourth of July to Kill Bill to, you know, Aviator. I mean, tons of stuff. But he started out shooting docs. Okay. Um, and so it's so it was great to be able to sort of bring that that doc aesthetic into this the way we shot this. Um, anyway, so that day, you know, we arrived and there was a blank field, and then you know a digger arrives and and starts to uncover this this mass grave that she had a hunch was there, and that all played out in real time. And and the women there who are wailing when the when the bodies come up are real Iraqi women. Really? Wailing. Oh, my God. About real trauma. And then at the end of that day, um, the women just start just pounding their chests and, and chanting this prayer for the dead. Whoa. You know, and that wasn't scripted. That wasn't planned. Um, it was just this really authentic and beautiful moment. And... We captured it, and you know those are those are, and, you know those are the moments that I loved in, in making this film is, is is those, you know, being open to the story changing, you know, being open to to this sort of happy accidents of life, right? And that's, you know, that's what happened. One thing that struck me that I thought was interesting is she's at the uh, I don't remember what the year was, but she's getting an award for British Press, uh, two thousand and eleven, maybe, yeah. and. Um, it's at this fancy gala and that sort of thing. And I've always kind of wondered this about with you is you're in, you're in the hood somewhere, you're in Aleppo, you're in all these places, and then cut to you at the Academy Awards or at any one of these kind of fancy award shows. How do you sort of balance that, that, that lifestyle where it's 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 like very much the extremes. It's like the worst of the worst, I, I would think. The worst of the worst to sort of the glitziest of of things in the in the world. How does that work in your mind? Yeah, I mean I, I think that's a big part of why I wanted to make this film, is that when I when I first heard about it, when I read an early draft of the script, and then I read the Vanity Fair article that it's based off of, um, I felt that enormous sort of connection to her um you know i've been to conflict zones i've covered you know pretty intense situations i've you know been in shootouts i've been in meth labs i've been in torture chambers um you know safe houses with people who are getting hunted by isis you know a lot of places that you don't necessarily want to find yourself and then so i felt that same draw to cover these stories um and then the next night be in a party in New York or you know wherever, and in that really bizarre dichotomy of those those two things, and then also you know the the dark thoughts and lingering thoughts that happen that stay with you. Yeah. Um. You know, I've I've. Yeah. So you know, a, a big part of the film for me, you know, is not just her courage and her drive and 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 sort of examining what 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 pushed her to tell these stories. Uh, but also the effects that that had on her. Right. You know, she suffered immensely from PTSD. Yeah. Um, you know, and she she you know masked that with with alcohol. That and you know this got progressively worse uh, over her life. You know, leading towards the end. So I'm really excited about this. Listening makes us smarter, more connected people. It makes us better partners, parents, and leaders. And there's no better place to start listening than Audible. Audible is where so many inspiring voices and compelling stories open listeners up to new experiences and ways of thinking. Audible members now get more than ever before. Members choose three titles every month. 
one audiobook plus two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Members also have unlimited access to more than a hundred audio-guided fitness and meditation programs. Audible members can also get free access to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post delivered daily to the Audible app. With the convenient app, members can access Audible anytime at the gym, while commuting, on the go, and on any device. It'll always pick up right where they left off. Audible also offers free and easy audiobook exchanges, credits you can roll over for a year, and a library you keep forever, even if you cancel. Explore all the ways listening on Audible can help improve mind, body, and soul with entertainment, information, and inspiration. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial and your first audiobook plus two Audible Originals for free. Visit audible.com slash WRH or text WRH to 500-500. The other day, I wanted to get back into Winston Churchill and was able to read William Manchester's The Last Lion. Apparently, Churchill is the most written about person other than, well, Jesus. And this book by William Manchester, which is on Audible, I think is probably the best Churchill book, if I don't say so myself, expert here. Uh, The Last Lion. I think it's also my favorite title of all time. So if you want to read up on your Churchill or anything else, start listening with a 30-day Audible trial and your first audiobook plus two Audible originals will be free. Visit audible.com slash WRH or text WRH to 500-500. Once again, visit A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash W-R-H or text W-R-H to 500-500. Something that we talk about on the podcast a lot with different people is um, mental health. How, how, and something that I picked up from her that I also pick up from you is, you know, when it's brought up in the movie about PTSD, she goes, no, that's what soldiers get. And it kind of, in a way, reminded me of you where you'd say things like, you know, well, these guys have it worse. But if we're able to here for a second, talk about you, how do you, how do you try to deal anyway with what you've experienced, the things you've seen? Do you... You know, how, how do you uh, seek help for those sorts of things? I would assume one has to. Yeah, I mean, I, I know you my, don't love talking my, about my yourself. First, my, first, my first answer was probably going to be people have it way worse than I do, obviously. And, and that, I mean, that's a, that's a fact. I mean, obviously, of course it is, you know, but it doesn't mean that you don't have an experience as well. Of course. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's, that's sort of the, the weird nature of this whole thing is that that's part of what haunts you too is that you, you feel bad for feeling bad. Like you, you know, when I take, for example, cartel in, you know, the amount of suffering that was happening in Mitchell Khan where I filmed, um, the devastation of the drug wars, the so many innocent civilians who were killed, um, and, and so many journalists, frankly, who were killed, kidnapped, tortured, dismembered for covering this. But I had a blue passport. And I got to go home to New York City. Um, you know, that's something that bothered me. Mm. You know, that's something that, so it's not just the images of it, but it's sort of the guilt of it. And yeah, you know, I've, I've had panic attacks. I've, I've, I've had things that, 
you know, I've had a lot of dark thoughts over the years, and um, I think that's part of what it channeled me, what I tried to channel into this character too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and 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 you know, there's a couple intense scenes in the film where, where she does have, you know, panic attacks, and 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 she's you know she's suffering, and and you know. A lot of what we're talking about now is what I talked about with with Rosman. You know, this is this is something that she hadn't experienced before. Um, you know, and so we we you know we were quite close, mm. she and I, and and so we, t- we talked for hours and hours and hours about my experience, about mm. you know, and I have a lot of other friends who've seen a lot worse than I have. That it, so, um, yeah. I mean, I guess in some weird, bizarre, twisted sort of meta sense. Um, this film was some sort of like weird examination of myself. Mm. Um, I haven't, you know, fully unpackaged that. Your humility is something I always try and learn from because I'm not as I'm not as humble as as, as Matt Heineman. Um <laughs> but it's true. Um, I remember when you were when you were at the Oscars, and I was with uh, an ex girlfriend, not to be named, and. Um, I literally started to tear up because I was like, there is no one in this world that you will root for more than Matt Hyman. You've obviously, uh, you know, in terms of career success, accomplished a tremendous amount at a young age. Your parents are still around. How how do you go about talking with them when you're in these sorts of places? That's something I, I can't imagine. I almost wonder if I... I don't know. That's something like I've done things that are 1% at what you've done in, 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 in the sense of, you know, putting your life on the line. How do you communicate with them when you're, when you're doing some of these things, if, if you're able to even talk about that? Yeah, I mean. Um, or you're just on? I don't know. You're giving me a face. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm trying to think the right. I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, with Cartel and again. I the rule I had a rule with them initially that which was, you know, I'll, I'll call you every night before I go to bed or at least text you mm. that I'm okay. Um, that proved to be a, a not a good idea. Because, <laughs> Why is that? Because there's a lot of examples where we had no service or right. I was in some super sketchy place where I didn't want in case you know my phone was being tapped, but I didn't want to text or couldn't text. So then they just worry and so. We created a new rule, which is I'll text you when I'm leaving the states, and I'll text you when I'm, when I'm back home. Um, but you know, it was definitely hard. It was hard on you know a relationship that I was in at the time. Um, it was hard on my family and everything. Um, and I guess that's part of the whole equation. Is is uh, yeah, it's not just you who who, who deals with it. It's mm. everyone around you. Mm. Um, and I think that was actually one of the most profound things. In, in in researching Marie is the amount of people that were still so traumatized by her death and 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 not not that I guess not that that's super surprising but you know it was several years later that is um, and and just it's still so raw um, and you know she was just so beloved and I think um, so to, you know people were quite reticent on on talking to us mm-hmm. and to speaking and to you know and also the idea of a you know, quote unquote Hollywood film right. um, was scary to people, um, and so it, you know it took a lot of sort of gaining their trust and breaking down barriers. 
Um, and I think, you know, some people probably had some semblance of, of guilt that they didn't stop her. Right. Um, but, you know, they couldn't have stopped her. No. And, you know, she would have um, kept going. You know, she, and, you know, I think that's one of the sort of, sort of sub-themes in the film is, 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 you know, it's almost like a, you know, the like cheesy action trailer or like sports movie trailer would be like, you know, he's getting old, but he can't stop. You know, right. what will make him stop? Like, I mean, there's every neon sign blaring saying, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep going to these war zones. Yeah. But, but she didn't. It's interesting that you brought up the fact that she, that that was a real father who lo- whose son bled out and that she walked away. Because I remember in the movie, there's a quick shot there where she she actually exits, like the the, the person playing the role. And I, I, I note in my head, I was like, oh, I don't think I've seen her walk out of anything yet. So you... you that was literally her walking off. So oh, that was real. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Because that actually, I was, I was at the monitors when that was happening. Because, you know, I didn't shoot the film... Bob Richardson shot the film, and I remember being like, "Wow, that was a really emotional take." Like, I'm excited to see where it goes. And I was like, "Oh, well, I guess that's her her leaving." Wow, um, that's a great example of story, um, of story changing and and kind of embracing it. Um, where do you get your news from? Changing topic briefly here. Your podcast. <laughs> that's a good. That's good. We'll use that in a promo. <laughs> there you go. Um, no, I'm a dinosaur. Uh, mainly uh, online. I don't. I, I don't read a hard. No, I didn't mean. Come on, I mean, I didn't mean like. Well, uh, like, like what outlets though? Oh, yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean like newspaper versus online. <laughs> Uh, I tried to read, you know, the Times every day, Mm -hmm. New York Times. You know, I I try to read some of the journal if I can. I try to read the New Yorker. Um, You know, I I get a bunch of sort of aggregated newsletters of of stories from each day, Mm -hmm. you know, from various outlets that I try to read. You know, mainly, obviously, because I care about what's happening in the world, but you know that's how I found all my f- films that I made, mm-hmm. uh, except for this one. Um, was was from some article. Do you ever watch cable news? Like I just think of the things that you cover and the things that cable news cover, and the the differences in that. I don't really. I don't watch the news. I, f- I find it so depressing um, to watch. Why? What do you mean by that? Um, I just think our world is so polarized, and and our media is so polarized, and I think it's it's something that really, um, I you know I don't like being told what to think. Um, you know I'm a, I have my views and and I know what I believe in, but I you know I don't want to be preached to, and I think you know, almost any time you turn on the TV and watch news, you're being pitched a certain angle. Mm. Um, and I mean I'm not I'm not breaking news here with what I'm saying. No, but, I mean, it's important. But I, but I think, and you know, I think that's part of why I wanted to make this film too, is that there's such lack of trust in media, you know, in, in, in journalism. You know, our current administration and other administrations around the world 
um, you know, I've been demonizing journalism um, and and journalists, and um, I find that quite sad. You know, I think journalists have been and should be, you know, the bedrock of a free and independent society. Um, you know, and I think, you know, Marie was a certain sort of old school journalist that that went to these places and told these stories, and you know, and that. There's not a lot of that anymore. I mean, you know, there there obviously are great investigative journalists and, and good people telling great stories, and I'm not, but like you know, there's less and less money in foreign bureaus. Uh, there's le- less and less money in, in long form investigative journalism, um, and I don't know. I'm meandering right now. No, but, not at all. Uh, it's it's because they just don't rate as well. Things like watching. What's going on in Aleppo is is too hard, or why do you think that? Yeah, is? I mean, I think I think that's I think that's something that that haunted Marie, and I think that's something that haunts me too. Is how do you get people to care about stuff? Right. You know, and she says it in the film is yeah. you know, will, will the wor- world care when my copy finally reaches them? Yeah. Um, and I think you know that's something that I've really tried to do in my docs is to try to find human stories you know, ways in which people can connect to a topic that they would otherwise keep at arm's length. You know, it's so easy to just kind of read a headline or, or you know, read stats or look at a photo and, and feel like you understand a situation. But um, but then you sort of, you know, it leaves you. And then you go on, drink your coffee and do whatever you want to do. And, you know, I've at least tried in a small way to try to find stories that give people a tiny bit of empathy into a situation that they might not otherwise understand and I'll never forget when I made this documentary uh, City of Ghosts uh, about Syria um, right as it was coming out there's this photo that was all over the internet about um, there's a, there's a young boy in the back of an ambulance yeah. just covered in dust yeah I remember and, and, and so many people came up to me and they're like oh my god can you believe what happened in Syria today and I'm like Oh my God! Can you believe what's been happening in Syria every single day for the past five years? Yeah. You know, and this photo, you know, came and went, and people cared for five minutes, and then they went on to not caring. How does one? How do we change that? Oof! If I had that, I guess, answer, if yeah. I had that answer, I probably right. wouldn't be sitting here. I mean, I right. think it's so. You know, it's human nature. It's, it's you know, you don't want to engage in things that upset you. You know, and you want to. You often keep these things at arm's length. Um, it's so much easier to live in the here and the now, and you know, and everyone shouldn't be stressing about everything in the world every day. Otherwise, you know, we have a world full of crazy people. But um, I don't know. I, I I have this belief, whether it's naivete or know, hubris or I don't know something, uh, that film storytelling podcasts whatever form of, of storytelling we're talking about has the ability to bring people together, has mm. the ability to create dialogue, has the ability to um, foster discussion and make people stop and think and care, at least for a little bit. Um, you know, I don't like watching things that preach to a choir. You know, I think it's so important to create dialogues between, you know, all sides of an issue, whether it's political or societal or, or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and, and, and not just you know, 
yeah, be screaming to the people that already believe what you believe in. Like, I don't find that interesting. I don't find it interesting talking to people that believe in exactly what I believe in. 